You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I love watching what Jesus does as soon as he gets people's attention. It says he's walking in verse 25, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, He's got crowds, they're looking, they're going, we're following the teacher, what in the world is he going to say to us? And he does nothing like the church in the 21st century would do. This is what he does with it. Oh, you want a little tidbit? Here you go. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that's bad enough. Then he says, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's at least two pieces of what he just said that if we just read that or just saw it on a billboard and we didn't have the context or maybe we don't know Jesus very well and and you see there's two pieces that should maybe just give us a little pause. The first one is what we're supposed to do, he says, which he uses the word hate. And then it's the object of hate, which is like family. It's the, the ones that we love the most. And we look and go, now wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to love even our enemies. And here you are saying, unless you hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So let me explain. This might mean something a little different than it does on the surface, as you might guess. Um, That is, the Bible's written and uses parts of speech like we, sometimes, like we use parts of speech. Or I should say, we, we use different figures of speech, and the Bible also uses figures of speech. And quite frequently in the Bible, you would see the rabbis would do this and Jesus would employ it. They would use hyperbole. And that appears to be one of the main things that Jesus is doing here. He used it very, very frequently. Um, I I did this once with some middle school kids and I was talking about this passage or another one. And I said, I have told, someone was asking a question. I said, I've told you a million times that Jesus uses hyperbole. And then I just waited and not one of them realized what I had just done. I was like, well, never mind. But Jesus does. He uses this hyperbole quite a bit. He uses, um, um, like Matthew chapter 5, you've heard what it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Hell. There's multiple examples of this, but nobody in that first century would have heard and heard Jesus talk and then gone, that's interesting, and then walked off and gone, oh, and then thought they had to rip out their eye and throw it. They wouldn't have thought that in the first century, but they would hear is um, your sin, in this case of lust, is a very serious thing. And Jesus is employing a similar thing here. Or in Luke's gospel, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There wasn't anybody there going, really? We could actually gain the entire world, like everything, like the universe is ours to command and control? Of course not. He's giving hyperbole to say, even if you could gain anything even better than you could possibly fathom right now, it's not worth it if you forfeit himself, if you forfeit your soul. So... um, we, we do this today. I, let, me, let me step to the side and give you a little side note here. We're actually really good at using this today, this hyperbole today. And one of the reasons why our society is so fractured is because we use hyperbole all the time. The two words that I'm going to encourage you to avoid are always and never. Always and never. Sometimes they're appropriate, but if... Um, 
we, we actually got this in some premarital counseling years ago. And they said, don't say always, don't say never. Because let's say Nikki and I are uh, having a conversation and I go, do you wanna, you wanna watch a movie tonight? And she goes, oh, I'd love to watch a movie. What if we watch this movie? And I go, oh, I don't really wanna watch that movie. I'd rather watch this one. Can we watch this one? Why don't we watch this one? How about this one? And we end up watching the movie I wanna do. Imagine if Nikki were to be thinking, normally when we're at an impasse about which movie to watch, Jim, I usually give in, and you usually get to be the one to pick it, and I just really wanted to pick it tonight. But if she goes, you always get to pick the movie. You know what happens as soon as you say always or never? You immediately, even though I know what she means, she's saying, guys, it just feels like you get to do that all the time. I'd like to pick this time. When she says you always, well, immediately I kick into defensive mode, and I just start going through my catalog of like, now wait a minute. If you remember, sweetie, it was about eight years ago and you wanted to watch this one, and I didn't, but we did your thing, do you remember? And now all of a sudden, we're arguing about some stupid movie just because she, or I do it too, if, if she uses always, or you never do this, or you always do this, it just becomes like, well, no. Like, just, just say what you mean. This is why when you go, well, these people always do this. The Democrats always do this. The Republicans never do this. And we start throwing out those kinds of words. It just takes the, the debate and the dialogue out of a sane conversation about issues or about a certain instance and just becomes mudslinging at the other person. Relational advice. Don't use hyperbole of always and never. It'll save you tons of time, I promise. But Jesus is here trying to actually prove a point, and this was, a, this was something that they would use in that day, and so they would have understood what he is saying. So Matthew's gospel in a parallel passage actually clarifies what Jesus was saying. It's something he probably said multiple times. In Matthew it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so what he's really trying to get to here is this is serious that Christ takes first place in our life. But I get why it says the word hate and why that can make us bristle a little bit. And then especially about like who he's talking about. He says, unless you hate, and he goes through all the people that we love the most. He goes through family. And so you look at that and go, is he really like downplaying it? Like, should we not love our family that much? And I think actually the opposite is true. That what he's trying to do is he's trying to take the very thing that is so precious to us and say, I'm even more so. That he's trying, like, think about this. If he were to go, all right, listen, if you want to follow me, you, you have to hate your ex. You have to hate Hitler, you have to hate that person that has caused you the most pain in your life. We would go, oh, I can sign on for that. Or if he used the same language, said, um, you know, if you have to hate, you know the, the, the lady that lives down the street and you've known her for years, you don't really know her name and now you've known her too long, you're a little embarrassed to go, what's her name again? She knows your name and you don't know her name. And yeah, her, she's the one you have to hate. If you're gonna be my disciple, we would go, oh, well, that's... That's not a big deal. What he's saying here is what, who you have to put first and foremost is me, Jesus Christ, is what he's saying. And he uses an example of the thing that we hold very dear, even more than family. He's trying to teach the importance. He's trying to teach this life of sacrifice that we're supposed to have. And that we need it. They needed it then. We need it today if you think about it because 
tend to make an idol out of family, which sounds, I mean, it sounds okay, like family is so important. In fact, we talk all the time about like, like faith and family and kind of put those two together. You know, faith and family as though they're the same thing. I, I have to say, I, I have a struggle with this. Um, as I'm sure you all know, it's 91 days until Christmas. And when Christmas gets here, I think... I think what I'm doing is saying I'm trying to celebrate the incarnate Christ and he came and what he did. In my life stage, I've got three kids around me, I got a wife around me, and so we go, we're gonna just be praising God for the family and we do all the ridiculous family things together and we love it, we watch all the movies and we, we do all that. But the, 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 the trap I have, to fall, I have to be careful of not falling into is to say this whole season, Christ is good and what he did, that was great, but family is also good and they're just as good. Like we can make an idol out of family. We can make, it also says yourself. So we can make an idol out of ourselves as well. And this boy, I gotta tell you, as a parent, the rubber meets the road when you have to all of a sudden explain to your kids why they can't have maybe some kind of social media because it might bring a temptation into their life even though all their friends have it. Or going and looking the coach in the eye and saying, my kid can't play on this team, I'm sorry, it's Sundays and we're spiritually forming them and this is why you know, we're here. Like that's where the rubber meets the road is to say, what's gonna, is the spiritual formation more than this kind of physical formation of our kids? We can make an idol of our family. I feel like I say this all the time, but we can, we can enter into relationships, dating relationships, marriage relationships, have kids, that relationship, because we have a, a vacancy in ourself that we want them to fill. That is making an idol out of them and then putting a weight on them to say, fill this void in me. So just to be clear, Jesus is saying, family is of the highest importance. That's what one of the things he's communicating. When he says, and hate your, even your own life, he's saying, you matter. I came and died for you. But what he's trying to do is to, is to just kind of tweak him a little bit, just to get him to go, that he is saying that he is more important than anything that I could list. That's what he's saying. In fact, he says it, he explains it. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying that the life of following Christ is one of sacrifice. This is before Jesus has even um, gone to the cross. And if you know a little bit about the history of the cross, it was something, it's actually, it's got an old history. The Persians are the ones that sort of get credit for it, I guess, if you want to say that. But it predated them, but they started to do it rampantly. And then the Greeks kind of modified it and did it a little bit. And then by the time the Romans got here, they said that thing the Persians did really worked. And so they really started doing it again. And so when he's with them going, take up your own cross, come after me, or you can't be my disciple, they would have, they would have heard and understood in that day that this is about, um, I might have shame, I might have pain, I might have humiliation, and it might cost me my very life. Following Christ might cost them shame, pain, and death. And honestly, like, we don't know a whole lot about this, do we? Christ is saying, following me is going to cost you. You mean following you is going to cost me, like actually cost me money maybe? Yep. Following you might cost me my job, yeah. Following you might cost me my own desires, yeah. My own dreams, yeah. My own plans, yeah. These things that I've thought about since I was a little boy or a little girl, and now here I am as an adult, and now I've come to faith in you, and you're saying you might upend it all? And he says, yes. I am more precious than anything. I, will, I am more to you. I am worth more to you than anything that your finite mind can dream up. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying he gets first place. Now, th- this, is, this is far from what I call check-the-box Christianity. Do you want to be a Christian? Yes. Great. Now I get to do whatever I want, and then I'll just be in heaven someday. I've been part of churches where we've done altar calls, and I, I don't fault them. I think they're fine. Um, I, I have noticed a difference in how they work, though. Some is um, come down, check a box, say a thing, we'll add you to our database, and we'll you know, feel good about ourselves, and maybe it's a wonderful, genuine conversion, and you walk out the door, and your life's forever changed. But as you can imagine, some of you, I know, have this experience where that happens, and nobody ever tells you, here's what it means now to follow the one that you just declared to be Lord. We've got some mindset that says I can be a follower of Christ and it should never cost me. I'll be the follower of Christ, but I shouldn't have to change anything about my life. And Jesus says, no, follow me. What I have for you is far better than anything that you can dream up. And so he he says this. It's like he's saying, I want you to know this ahead of time. That's why he says, which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether or not he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. He's saying, know what you're getting into, plan what you're getting into before you actually get into it. This is in the context of count the cost of being my disciple. And he gives another example. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation back and asks for terms of peace. This is a fascinating thing I want to just point out, that if you think about Jesus' methodology in his evangelism was to say, count the cost and know what you're getting into if you are going to follow me. Church in 2022, especially in the West, especially in America, but in the West, says, um, let's get people in the door. Let's just explain that Jesus loves them, and that's it. And then somewhere along the line, then we'll get to the fact that this means life change, that this means a different way of seeing the world. This means a different way of living. And, I, and we got to walk a fine line. It's not just getting up. I mean, there's, there's being delicate. There's being wise. But I notice what Jesus does, I think, is far from where largely the church is today. That it's, let's just get people here. Let's give them kind of the soft version, bare essentials. And then, and then we'll do, it almost feels like a bait and switch to some. Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my Disciple. That's his summary of what he has just said. He said, I am more precious than anything there. Now, this is, uh, this is a little difficult in America. I, I don't know about you. I, like, growing up, I mean, I grew up in the Bible Belt in, like, the 90s, like, late 80s, when was I, 75? So, like, yeah, 80s, 90s. And I remember listening and people would give this message and they would go, you know, take up your cross and be ready to sacrifice for him. And I was like, okay. Everybody around me is kind of a Christian and if, even if they're not, like, to do the moral thing doesn't really cost me because even people that aren't Christians, like, well, we know the list of the good and bad things to do. And so, like, you just had almost cultural pressure the other way. So I remember listening to this kind of thinking it was a little hypothetical, um, you know, or like the bad kids would slip off and drink, and I knew you weren't supposed to do that. And I was like, oh, sacrifice. And, like, that was, that was kind of it. It's a little, getting a little different today. 
and, and we moved to Colorado, which makes it a little different as well. Now we got to swim upstream a little bit, don't we? And if you watch in, in the public sphere especially, the debate has moved slightly from issues, whatever the topic is, which is where we used to, we used to talk about issues, and now it comes to the very heart of who you are to say, if you weren't religious, you're imposing your religion on somebody else. You Christians are trying to do this. And now it's going, and it went from, we're disagreeing on this, to it's a Christian problem. It's a problem with Christianity. You see that largely in the culture today. And so I almost feel like some of you have been called to sacrifice, and we should be ready and prepared to do it. But the question is, um, how do we become a person of self-sacrifice? That's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to live a life saying, I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And the question is, how in the world do we actually do that? Because we tend to view sacrifice the same way the world views sacrifice. I'll give you a couple examples. Why would somebody who's not a Christian live a life of self-sacrifice? And before you think of like one or two examples that really did, even though they weren't believers, just think for a minute, like in general, if you're not a Christian, why would you live a life of self-sacrifice? I've talked to non-believers, and if you really get to the heart of it, and even just talking to them, it looks like they have great motives. And, and honestly, some of them are doing these really, really wonderful things, so I don't want to minimize that. But oftentimes, it's, well, I just, you know, I feel guilty. Like, I've got so much, and, and um, I've been given so much, I feel like I should just give back. That's nice, but... Really, it's sacrifice to assuage your own guilt, which isn't self-sacrifice. That's self-serving. Boy, I feel better after I go and I serve and I sacrifice for others. That's self-serving. There's some, I don't know how prominent this is, but there's some that like to go sacrifice so they can brag about how sacrificial they have been. Sitting around the dinner table and just hoping you get a chance to work in. Well, you know, I mean, I volunteer with you know, disadvantaged children, and <clears throat> just kind of work it in a little bit. So people go, you do? Wow. Those are the wrong reasons to do it. I, I think I've told you before. So we went to, Puerto Rico just got hit with another hurricane, by the way. Oh, my goodness. And um, we were there with Rockland. Um, two had just gone through in the period of like a year and um, one was not good, one was really, really bad. And um, I mean, we were down there and we got to meet with some ministries down there and it's, it's the most, it was really surreal to stand there and he goes, this is where the hurricane went and you go, yeah, I see where the hurricane went. Like it looks, it was just like kind of chiseled out the path that the hurricane took and you could see these, um, these yellow tarps over houses and the yellow tarps were um, the ones that FEMA had come in and said, this is the house, I don't know how they selected it, this is the house that needs to be built next, so we'll put our supplies towards this house, and then this house, and this house, and they had it all over the place. So you could look and see the yellow and see um, who was next. And um, <clears throat> what had happened was FEMA had come in, and they had so many people that came in to do hurricane relief, they started just like yellow tarping tons of different places, tons of houses. And we were there, and we were going, it's been months now since this hurricane has hit, and there's still all these tarps everywhere. And I talked with a guy who, um, so, so FEMA's not allowed to give um, supplies to any kind of religious organizations. I don't know if I'm about to get people in trouble or not, but they did. 
The reason they did is because they were trying to help the people of Puerto Rico. And one of the guys that we talked to that, that liaisoned with FEMA said the reason they finally ended, so, so what happened was they, they said, we're doing all this, and a whole bunch of people came, and then everybody left. And so they have all these plans to fix all these houses, but everybody left, so there was no one there to do it. Tragedy strikes, everybody goes down, and then everybody leaves. And what this guy said, and the reason why, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, finally gave resources to a Christian organization on the ground was because they said, someone from FEMA said, Christians are the only ones who stuck around. Christians went down and set up organizations. We got to see it was like a, like a, um, a, a Baptist men's something, or they're called Send now. They saw this and they said, we're going. And they went down and they planted there to long-term serve the people of Puerto Rico. And so it got so compelling that even our government had to look and go, you're the ones that are actually helping people. And so the process was they actually went, what if we set up another corporation and we give to them and whatever you do with it is fine. And they finally just went, take, they said it takes too long here. And they gave stuff to the Texas, Texas Baptist Men's Association, something like that, and said, go help people. You're the only ones that are here. You're the only ones that are sticking around. You're the ones that will upend your life and come down here to serve and you might see this and go, how in the world can we actually become people like that? That we would see a need and we would go, I will absolutely sacrifice for that. It's like when I, when I teach in 1 Corinthians, it talks about Christians aren't supposed to sue each other, which sounds like foreign to many people, because the reason not to is because you take that person to court and it says you've already lost, because what you've done is you have shown the world that we as Christians can't take care of this amongst ourselves. And to talk about something like that feels like, oh gosh, there's no way I could ever get there. But you don't understand how much money he owes me and what happened. And if you really knew the story, and I just go, let's just look at this. How can someone get to the point where they might go, I will forego thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars if needs be for the ministry of the gospel? How can we get to that point? And here, here's two, two things I think have been, uh, I've been just mulling this week. First of all, number one, small acts of sacrifice can get you ready for the big acts of sacrifice. Small acts of sacrifice can get you ready for the big acts of sacrifice. If, you're, if you have, um, as a Christian, thought my life is about me and revolves around me and what I want and I don't want to sacrifice anything, what I just said about not suing somebody can sound completely, utterly foreign. But if we say, I want to make small sacrifices and feel it and, and, and on and on and on, then all of a sudden, by the time it gets to something where you're called to give a great sacrifice, you can go, yeah, this is my life. This is how I live. My life's not mine. My life is his. I've been practicing um, making Christ preeminent in my life, and now there's an opportunity to really, really demonstrate it. I'll, um, maybe a parallel story will help. There was a, um, one church where I was serving, there was a, a gentleman who had been there for about 20 years and they were getting a new pastor. And he said, <clears throat> he said, you know, this new pastor's coming in. He came and met with me and he just said, I'm already grieving because I know change is going to happen. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm, I was trying to be sensitive and, and that church had not changed anything in 20 years that he'd been there. And so I was like, I get why you'd feel that way why it could be a little scary that new guy comes in and what's gonna happen next. And so he said, I'm just, I mean, he said, I'm pre-grieving was his word. He said, I'm pre-grieving that there's gonna be changes. 
And so we had a really nice, he was really, really a God-honoring man, and, um, and we just chatted about it a little bit, and he was just nervous and just waiting for things to change. And, um, and then I met with him and his wife another time, and we kind of processed together, and here's what we came up with, was if there is going to be change, which I didn't know if there was, but I assume there was, if, if there is going to be change when this new pastor comes in, after going through years of no change and years of sitting in your exact same place in the pew every single week and you get up at this time and you get here and then you've got your Sunday school class you go to and that's your routine for 20 years, I get why that's painful to all of a sudden go, um, all that is now in question, it might all change and you have no control over it. And so my advice was, what is a change that you have control over? Because the issue is you don't like change And so is there something you can start doing to help gear your mind towards becoming a person who's more prepared for change? And so he goes, well, no, he goes, I could sit in a different pew. (laughs) I said, that's great. And he did. And after 20, and I actually saw the first Sunday that he sat in a different pew and he he gave me a big thumbs up and some people next to him sat down and kind of looked like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Am I in the wrong spot? You know, because they've been sitting there for 20 years. And he said one of the things it did is it was incredibly empowering to him to be able to go, we, we haven't changed, so you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some change on my own. And by just doing that very simple thing, um, one, his daughter told him, she, got, she, said, um, she said, go to a different Sunday school class. And they were like, no. And so um, she said, can you take a different role in the Sunday school class? And they went, oh, we could do that. And so they became like leaders, like kind of administrative leaders in the class. And all of a sudden, their routine just shifted a little bit. And they, they, they intentionally made those small movements. And so when the, by the time the new pastor got there, and there were changes and things like that, and he did a real nice job with them and everything, um, but it just wasn't much of an issue for him. Churches are notoriously terrible at this, and we go, don't change anything, and then one day we're like, oh no, we're gonna, I've been at a church where we changed the time, <laughs> I'm just venting now, I'm sorry, we changed the time of the worship service by 10 minutes, and we called a congregational meeting to discuss it. All right? Churches are the worst of this. Don't change, don't change, don't change, and then all of a sudden, even the tiniest change, people go, ah! I'm not about to announce anything, by the way, I'm not like prepping you for that, I guess I should say. But what happened was this man just took control and he just said, you know what, if I, if I enact these changes on my own, it'll be a little nervous for him, I'll be a little nervous about it, but it's good, and it was so healthy for him. And so I'm looking at this and going, how can you be a person of great sacrifice? Small acts of sacrifice can help get you there. So a few examples of this. Um, <clears throat> when I counsel people who are, who are married and um, we'll say the last one, or well, like I say, a husband is saying, I'm hurt. She has hurt me. This is her fault. And I'm not willing to swallow my pride and sacrifice to say I will extend forgiveness before she's even asked for it. That's a hard, I mean, that's real life. That's hard. I told one man, I said, um, so what if you did this? I get that it's hard to look her in the eye because there's so many emotions right now. What if you just write a card? Like when's the last time you wrote her a love letter? And he looked at me like, are we supposed to write love letters? I'm like, yeah, this is pretty good. When's the last time you did it? Never. What if you just wrote a sweet, simple letter, not accusing, owning your part, telling her you love her and you want this to work out, you know things are bad. Write her a note, if it's hard to look at that, put it on her pillow. Oh, oh, but I want her to come and apologize. 
I was like, do that, and your wife will probably read it and faint, so do it. And he did. And he said, that was easier than I thought. And then the next thing was, there's more sacrifice involved, but he got it started. And now becoming a man of sacrifice in his marriage is easier. You know, I think about, um, there's people here that call Rockland home that don't participate financially, that don't give. And I get it that it's easy to look and go, do you really need my money? And like all that kind of stuff. Here's what you do. How do you become a person who doesn't give to someone who can give sacrificially? I'll tell you this, and watch, this is about to cost me money, so this isn't like a fundraising technique. Go home today and just lay out some single dollar bills, and then next week when you come here, um, just get in the habit of just grabbing one or two or three or whatever you want and take them and put them in the plate. We mat- I said it costs us money, we match it, and then we send it out the door. And we send it to our ministry partners. And what you'll start to see is that little act of sacrifice, things can start to get easier and easier and easier until you can become a person of just um, great generosity. I think of that neighbor down the street that, oh man, I should really share Christ with her, but gosh, that's gonna be a tough one and I just, I don't know what the ramifications are gonna be. And maybe it's just saying, here's what I can do. I can just start by praying for her. And then... Next time I see her, I'm going to tell her, hey, Dean, just so you know, I'm a Christian, and and I do pray for you regularly, and then that's it, and then you can just move on, if that's all you got. And then all of a sudden, what you'll see is, oh, she responded better than I thought. She actually kind of appreciated that, and that little thing of sacrifice of putting yourself out there can start to build on itself. Or say you, you know, family, you've got family coming in town for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it is, and, um, and there's some people that might be offended if you have a prayer, and you don't know how they're gonna respond if you actually say, I wanna gather up and I wanna pray. You could just do something very simple going, I'm gonna take this risk. And, I just, and maybe just say something like, hey, I went online, I actually found a really meaningful blessing that I wanted to say before we started today, so if you just take a minute and let me read it. Maybe that's just the way to start. To say, this might cost me, I don't know what they're gonna think, but that little step can help us become sacrificial people and live a life of sacrifice. So I would ask you, like, is there something that you're going, oh, I know mine. Like, where is God calling you to start that area of sacrifice even today? That's one way we get there. To become people of great sacrifice for the Lord, we have to be faithful in the small acts. But then the second thing is we actually have a reason to sacrifice more than anybody else does. You know, um, Jesus, think about what he just said when he said, take up your cross and follow me. This is, um, what he's saying is, um, you would say to me, you are willing to suffer humiliation, pain, shame, and death for me, to be one of my disciples. This is before Christ went to the cross himself. So think about that. You have no idea Jesus is going to the cross and you're there, you're one of his disciples and he says, take up your cross and follow me. You would go, oh, you're causing me, you're you're saying I'm supposed to be willing to pay any price to be a disciple of yours. And then imagine a little bit later, after Jesus has just said, by saying that you will suffer pain and humiliation for me, that is demonstrating how deeply you love me. Imagine just a little while later, when they walk by and they see that man hanging on the cross, that he is trying to say, I love you so much. The object of my love is you. And this is how great my love is. We look at what our Savior did, and it mobilizes us to say, I'm not better than him. 
talk about self-sacrifice, then we can live that way as well. Christ suffered the greatest and the object of his love. He's trying to tell us how great he loves us. I, by the way, this is absolutely a true story, what I'm about to tell you. Went to a concert Thursday night down in the Springs. Didn't know how I was going to wrap up my sermon. I was like, come on, Lord, give me a song or something here that I can, with some good lyrics. We're down at a Jordan Felice concert in Colorado Springs. And um, I'm 47. When I get in concerts, I feel like I'm 107 because I always feel like they're too loud. And so we're at this concert, and it was awesome. It was loud to me, to my delicate ears, it was loud. And I'm looking next to me, and there was this, this older woman who was there, and she was sitting there, and then um, her granddaughter was next to her. I found out after talking to her. Her granddaughter was next to her. This concert was awesome. This is a young guy, and, and he's singing, and this, this girl is just up, and she is just like dancing, and she is just, you know, she is just so into it, and she's singing the praise, as a Christian concert, singing the praise music and everything. I thought, this is the, this is the coolest thing ever, and I'm watching the grandma just standing there and she just has her eyes closed and I assume she's just praying and I'm looking going, wow, that's, that's impressive. Like I'm sitting here, you know, like it's a little loud, honey, you know, and, and to my daughter and then this, this grandma is just there and she's just, you know, cool as can be. I was like, man, she is so much cooler than I am. And then this, uh, her granddaughter did a, um, she said something, I assume she slipped out to the restroom or something like that and she slipped out for a second and immediately, the concert was still going, immediately, Grandma looks and sees that she's gone, sits down, and just covers her ears. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I see that. And I saw, and something just immediately clicked in my mind, which is, she's miserable, but she loves her granddaughter, so she's willing to do this. And so I sort of scooched over and I just sort of put a hand on her and, you know, she looked up at me and we both understood what was happening. And then her daughter comes back and, you know, I was, I was kind of the lookout for her. I was like, oh, she's coming. And she's like, oh, and she stands up, you know, and kind of gets back into it. And after the, after the service, I just, uh, I just said to this woman, I just said, I just said, hey, that's, you know, God bless you. That's really cool. And I promise you, she said this to me. She said, after what he did for me, this is easy. After what Christ has done for us, when we remember that, living a life of sacrifice starts to be easier. 